welcome to the Bloke and a Bird Show. You know, this week we're coming to you a little later than normal because, you know, here in the U.S., it's a holiday weekend, so we're doing holiday weekend type stuff. Well, you know, our neighbors to the Great White North, it's also a holiday weekend for them. Happy Late Canada Day. It wasn't that like last weekend? No, that was the 1st of July. Okay. Was the holiday. Oh, okay. So, yeah, the way I guess it worked this week, this would have been a holiday weekend for them, too. Well, that works out really well, then. <laughs> yes. It started <laughs> as a holiday weekend for our neighbors to the north, and it ends as a holiday weekend for the United States. That that works out very well for North America in general. You know, if only we could shove Cinco de Mayo right around here at the same time, <laughs> we'd have the trifecta for all three countries that fall in North America. <laughs> Anyway, so let's jump all the way down Australia. Australia? I know. It makes a whole lot of sense, doesn't it? Australia? Australia. Yes, Australia. Not you Austria. Th- you think I'm, I, I'm, <laughs> I'm screwing up here, but no, I am 100% correct in this because Daniel Ricardo, you know, this past week, the Australian Daniel Ricardo yes. celebrated a birthday. And in recognition of his birthday, he turned 27 this week, Mm -hmm. and in recognition of this, the organizers of the Australian Grand Prix, not Austria, but Australian one, the one in Albert Park, named a grandstand after him. Oh, he has a grandstand now. Yes. So you can go sit in Ricardo? You can sit in the Ricardo Premium Grandstand, which looks over turns three, four, and five, tickets for which went sale this past week. Okay, that's not nearly as cool as to go say, I'm going to go sit in Daniel Ricardo. True. Now, you know, in honor of his birthday, and I should mention there were a lot of birthdays. Apparently, Formula One is a very birthday-rich week this mm-hmm. week. But in honor of his birthday, his teammate, the young Mr. Max, mm-hmm. sent him a tweet. Did it say happy birthday? It did. It, it, was, very, it was very sweet and And he polite. said, drinks are on you? And no. then he went, oh, wait, I can't drink? No, it didn't say that. However, he hashtagged it. You know, the standard hashtags of like Red Bull Racing and mm-hmm. that type of stuff. And then his last hashtag was a little kind of knife wound dig. And it says, hashtag, you're getting old. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. Kind of rich from the youngest boy on the grid, but okay. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's not like Daniel is exactly the senior statesman. No, I mean, at 27, he not at all. No. But um, he does join the likes of Mark Weber, Alan Jones, Jack Brabham, Alan Prost, Juan Manuel Fangio, Ayrton Senna, Michael Schumacher, Arthur Waite, and Jim Clark in having a grandstand named after them in Australia. Wow. So he says because the, you know, the grandstand overlooks turn three, four, and five, um, Daniel says that hopefully turn four will be his best corner on the Albert Park Grand Prix circuit. <laughs> <laughs> you know, to give his fans that sit in his section the best view. Well, yeah. Well, I'm glad that he's always thinking about, you know, what he can give back to the fans. Um, in other Do we want to go through some of the other birthdays real quick since I mentioned Sure, there go were a through bunch all of-, of them. Who else had birthdays this week? Uh, Nico Rosberg. Mm-hmm. Um, he celebrated his 31st birthday, I believe, this week. Okay. Um, William sent out a a message on Facebook to wish him a happy birthday with a photo of a very, very young Nico. (laughs) Back when he was wearing Williams colors. Well, he was very, very young then. He had surfer boy down. 
<laughs> he did. Um, and today, as we record, was Sebastian Vettel's birthday. Yes. So um, Even though he didn't have a great day on the track. No, I don't think he celebrated very well. Anyway, moving on. So, Grand Prix news. A group of Italian businessmen from the Italian city of Bari have opened talks with Bernie Eccleston about holding a Mediterranean Grand Prix from 2020 on a track around its streets. That's in Italy, right? Yes, Bari, Italy. Uh, members of the group are led by, or, or the group is led by Italian Fabio Montcalvo, and they are already believed to have secured 200 million euros in investment for the project, which has begun a push to build up uh, the further support required to make it a reality. Okay, explain something to me. Okay. We have somebody in Bari that's looking for a Grand Prix in Italy. Mm-hmm. We already have the Italian Grand Prix. Well, for right now, we do. And Imola keeps coming back up. Yeah. Can we not focus? The problem is that the issues with the Italian Grand Prix are Monza's issues. And Monza coming to whatever the agreement is or, or refusing to meet Bernie's extortion fees. Correct. But Imola seems to have the same issues. I'm not sure they do. In in listening to what we've seen, I'm not sure that they do. Uh, it sounds to me more like I'm not sure Bernie wants to go to Imola in the first place. Because Imola seems ready and willing to host Formula One. They've been certified. They've got grade one certification on the track. But Bernie just seems to find reasons to not talk to them. Okay, but here's the question. You know Bernie as well as I know Bernie. Which means not at all. But in our deep understanding and weekly analysis of the bad hair Bernie, Mm -hmm. we have come to determine that he is only motivated by one, and I mean one factor. If that's the case, if he is mostly motivated by dollars, and Emila is waving euros at him and saying, hello, over here, what... Why wouldn't he want to? I mean, what else is at play here? I don't know. That's the thing. We don't know. I think that's just weird. And we then, don't know. And then to turn around and say, okay, now we're going to open <coughs> talks with yet a third location in Italy. Now, but this one specifically is, they, they are not asking to be an Italian Grand Prix. They are asking to be a Mediterranean one. Well, and that's fine. I mean, you know, it, it, it's... Makes probably a lot more sense than having the European Grand Prix in Asia. Oh, well, you're going to go back there again. It was easy enough. (laughs) And slam the European Grand Prix in Baku. Now, the last thing I will say on this. Yes. Is that Bari is no stranger to F1, and they did hold uh, Grand Prix races for both sports cars and Formula One on a street circuit in the city between 1947 and 1956. Okay. Hey, you know, they're not an unknown. Yeah. Not an unknown, except no modern race fan will ever have remembered that. They'll find it in the book. True. The book. Yes, the the great big book of everything. F1. Yes. The F1 edition. (laughs) 
but we don't have to go to like sing the song before we open the book unlike stanley you sure about that stanley had to sing the song yes he did we don't sing the song i don't have a clip for it otherwise we would play but we're not going to do that right now anyway um as we have mentioned a few times uh we're coming up to the point where negotiations need to start for the next round of commercial deals and commercial agreements for 2020 between the teams and one of the things that us and many others have railed against is the way the payments are structured. Particularly your girlfriend. Okay, that was an odd connection there. But <laughs> <laughs> no, the last interview I, I watched with Claire Williams, one of the things that was asked was if you could change anything about Formula One, what would it be? And she said payout structure, point blank. Well, you know, it's not just her. Your, your favorite favoritist team principal in the entire series Monisha Keltenborn has been railing <laughs> against it. No, 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 no. That's sarcastically my favorite. Claire is not sarcastically your girlfriend. So let's keep that very okay, fair straight. Enough. <laughs> fair enough. But anyway, Bernie came out this week. Really? And said that not that way. <laughs> wow. <laughs> That's news to everyone. He came out and he said that um, he is willing and wants to address the unequal division of Formula One's revenues by scrapping the current two-tier system for payouts. Ooh. So he's going to go to a one-tier system where all the money goes to him. Possibly. Now, you know, just to review how this works, we talked about this last year. You know, Ferrari gets more than than everybody else despite, you know, coming in second right um they got last year or, or this coming year actually it was last year um they're expected to get 192 million dollars from the sport of that 70 million dollars is a bonus that only they qualified for the ferrari payment nobody right. else gets that payment right there that's just ferrari being ferrari then they get 35 million for its championship championship success in the 2000s and another 87 million dollars for its second place now if you compare that to mercedes with their back-to-back -back win get 171 million dollars in total mm -hmm. now that includes the 39 million dollar bonus for its recent title successes and a 35 million dollar heritage bonus Williams, who finished third in 2015, earns just $87 million, including a $10 million heritage bonus. And then when you go further down, you have McLaren, who they finished ninth and got $82 million. But Force India got, finished fifth, and they got 67 Yeah, none of that makes any sense. So he is talking about doing away with that. Really? Um, he also, he further elaborated on his comments. Um, actually, before I even go to that, um, he did say that there is already a performance element to the payout structure. It's not just this strict, you know, you've been in the sport this long, here you go, here's, here's more money. He says there is a, a bit of a performance element, and, you know, that's um, exemplified by Mercedes. Um, what bernie said was you know we sort of look after basically if that's the right word four or five teams because they have a long-term commitment with us he's talking about the entire structure right now mm -hmm. um 
look after four or five teams because they have a long-term commitment with us. They signed four or five years ago to stay to 2020, so they needed something for doing that. The other teams couldn't sign or they wouldn't sign. If they stopped, what could we do? Now, Mercedes also earned an extra bonus by meeting an agreed target of winning two titles. And Eccleston sees this as an example of a top team earning extra funds on merit. Now, what he says, it would really be the same sort of system because when they came in, they were on a basic, basic salary because they committed to stay to 2020, and we knew if they committed, they would stay. They would stay. So we said, if you do what Red Bull did, win a championship, you're going to get extra if you win two. And I said to our board, they're never going to win a championship, let alone two. So <laughs> they screwed me and won two championships. <laughs> um, and newsflash, they're about to win the third. Yeah. <laughs> hey, speaking of financial news. Okay. I don't want to derail our, our slamming of Bernie, <laughs> but I don't know how much more you can comment on Bernie. Um, did you hear... And I know this is big news because you mentioned Monisha Keltenborn. They made payroll this month. I heard that they made <laughs> payroll for the first time this season. They made it on time. Now, I don't know what happened. I do. Okay. Sort of. Um, there's a hush-hush agreement. We don't know who the new partnership is, but there will be a new partner for the uh, Swiss-based Sauber team. Monisha has not been at some recent Formula One events. Well, that we know. And She's she... not been there because she has been courting this new partnership. Well, that was the rumor. And that is what is, that was came out, I think, like in the last day or two as being what was going on. They have made payroll for the on time for the first time since December of last year. You know, the, the question I have to have before we loop back into this is... Given the history of deals that Monisha has announced in the last three years, is this real or is this another fake Russian millionaire? Because every deal that she has announced in the last three years, outside of putting more drivers in seats than they had seats for, has involved some fake Russian bajillionaire who, at the end of the day, didn't pay them. I couldn't answer that, but I will say that where I read the article that they have got a new sponsor and will probably change the sponsorship deal was a highly reputable news source. It was Autosport well, we, or BBC. We had heard from reputable sources, too. It wasn't the they, mirror. No, but it, it was Sauber coming out and announcing that they had secured a, a finance deal with whatever fake Russian gazillionaire of the day. But it was Sauber saying this. It wasn't the some, you know, Das Bild or somebody like that in Germany, some tabloid. It was them saying that and then finding out that, oh, wait, this guy is actually, you know, a fake. Well, the question becomes, is this going to work out because they actually had the cash to pay bills? That's the good the question there. So we'll see what happens over the next couple of weeks. Yeah, but there could be changes. Now, anyway, back to Bernie and the smaller teams. Regarding the potential future benefits for the smaller teams of a new system, Bernie said at the moment they have no chance of getting this money that we're talking about. They don't have any chance. 
but we're going to make sure they're in a position where they do. If they perform, then they'll be in the same position as everybody else. I think they'll be happy with this new idea because they've been unhappy with how it is now. So they must be happier in the future. Not because that's what they've been asking for, but no, because they didn't like what we're doing now, so we're changing it. So that's going to make them happier. You got to look, I mean, if you get really serious for a second, you've got to look at a team like Haas. Mm -hmm. They've come into a sport as a brand spanking new team. Yep. And they're running really well. Mm -hmm. They're in direct competition with McLaren. McLaren is recognizing, Jensen Button came out today and said that that's their main competition is Haas which has got to be a little demoralizing for McLaren. Yeah. But they're they're playing with some of the mid-pack boys. They didn't have to grow into that. But because of the way this deal is structured, Haas can't make any money for three years. Mm -hmm. And if you then turn around and look at it, what's going to happen is Manor, because they got two points two years ago, they're and qualify for the three year, you know, they they waited their three years, yep. they've held on. They're gonna get a payout before Haas will get a payout, yet Haas has done eight times better than them. Yeah. And, you know, never mind the that they have far exceeded anybody's expectations for the season. But we'll talk a little more about Haas in a minute. And probably brought more new fans to the sport, which ultimately should I don't know yet. Maybe. I think they I, have the I, best potential of bringing I, I some American fans. I think they do. I just don't know how. Don't know what they're doing around that yet. So, there's been a change to the FIA super license rules, ah. specifically to eligibility for the rules. And I want to make it clear because some other folks have been talking about it and did not understand how this worked, and their comments were. Um, Inaccurate at best and blatantly wrong at, at worst. What the <laughs> what has been announced is that drivers who manage to go through an entire uh, a, an entire series um, and avoid any penalties for dangerous or unsporting behavior will get two additional super license points. So, in other words. If you are in a in a junior series and they offer up for wrecks or collisions or whatever, it's possible to accumulate um, penalty points. If you go an entire season with a completely clean record and don't get a single penalty point, you will get two two points on your towards your eligibility for a super license. And you have to have so many points to be eligible for the super license. Correct. Oh, so by being safer in a junior series, you could fast track your super license. I don't know if fast track is, is the best way to put it because, you know, you look at it one way is, okay, you're a driver who's not particularly successful in a junior series. But you're safe. But you're safe because you're driving slow and nobody's around you see so you, mm -hmm. <laughs> you can avoid the incidents yeah you'll get two points on f towards your super license for that but you've earned you know three points for the year in that series that may not be enough to even otherwise get you any kind of eligibility points for your super license 
But if you are, it is t- incentive. But if you're a top performer and safe, mm-hmm. because while you're riding the edge, you're riding it fairly safely. Those extra two points could actually build up and matter. Exactly, and, and honestly, what I think this is truly targeted at, from what we have seen, especially in like the GP2 series, there have been in the last two years some fairly significant, fairly massive crashes in GP2. Mm. And always attributed to driver behavior and driver aggressiveness. Um, what was it last year or the year before that? We had a race that they, I think they canceled it because it was the the behavior was so bad. They black flagged an entire field or something like that on lap two. I mean, there has been a lot of issues down in GP two. So I'm assuming that that's the thought here. Is yes, we want you to drive aggressive. Yes, we want you to prove yourself and show that you're good. And oh, by the way, we want safe drivers in Formula One. And if you can be aggressive and you can drive well, it helps that path up. That's my thought. Well, and if they and here's the other thing, here's where it can get really cool. Mm-hmm. It, it cool being an interesting word that I use there. You look at somebody like Roman Grosjean. Mm-hmm. You look at somebody, um, any of the other ones, Pastor Maldonado comes to mind. But any of the the particularly crashy drivers. Mm-hmm. And they make it up to Formula One because they were highly aggressive in the junior series, which got them the wins and got them the points. They weren't aggressive. They get to playing with the big boys with the big engines and the big cars, and they cause a lot of problems problems and unsafe situations. And I, you remember, I mean, when we first started watching Formula One, it was Roman Grosjean was a first lap failure. Um, well, it was Mark Webber who called him a first lap nutcase. Right. And a lot of that had to do with not making a good transition between where you're scrapping in the mud to respecting each other. And there's a lot of, there has to be a lot of respect for the other drivers because you're all at a same level to be on the edge and still be safe. Now, I don't know what their, outside of the, that they had success in the junior formats. I don't know what their record was otherwise. So whether or not that applies or not, I, I don't know, but the other thing that it's very important to make clear about this new system and these bonus points, these safety points, is that they only apply to the driver's super license and, and, and their super license eligibility. It has nothing to do with their championship points. The teams don't get any reward for it. It doesn't move any teams up. And this is only for those who are working on super license points now technically yes formula one drivers would be eligible for these points as well because they are driving in a well they're they're driving in a series that issues out penalty points but again these points would only be going towards their eligibility for a super license not for their position in the driver's championship not for a team's position in the constructor's championship or anything like that and that's a very very important differentiation so is there any advantage to somebody that already has a super license? I mean, do they, they have to maintain something to keep their super license, right? Basically, driving in the series maintains it. allows them to maintain it. So, so I didn't I know mean, if it's that's not a huge benefit there if you're you already in it. the series. 
but for for those that are trying to get break into the series, it is important. Okay. So, little bit of silly season news. Little bit. Little bit. Not enough for the music. Okay. Little bit of music. Uh, 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 of news. Carlos Saints. Come up, bards? No, don't even do that. <laughs> Carlos Saints has been confirmed for another year at Toro Rosso. But also, Carlos has come out and he has said that he believes that he can, quote unquote, force a Red Bull drive next year. Really? Yes. wonder what he's thinking. Is, is he saying what he's thinking? He doesn't say. He just says that he believes he can force opportunities to gain an early promotion. Um, I think he, his belief is if he continues to drive well, mm-hmm. that's going to be enough. With the thought that – what I think the guess is is that he does not think that Max will be able to hold on to that seat. Hmm. And, and, and Do you think that's from a standpoint of that Max will move to another team because, you know, he's Max and he's the super wonder boy these days and maybe a red car would offer him a spot and he'd be lured away? I No, actually, I think it's kind of the opposite in Carlos's mind. Carlos sees it as, you know, the two of them came up together into Formula One he is the more experienced open wheel driver compared to Max mm-hmm. and he the two of them did not get along they always wanted to be the number 1 driver there and he sees himself as the better driver who got passed over that's what i think it is that's a dangerous position to be in and if you want some advice i think i would call my buddy mark weber yeah but the difference here it, at least to keep Carlos with a ride, is that the person whose seat that Max ended up taking, mm-hmm. when he, who is now driving alongside Carlos, is has basically out. yeah he's basically been in self destruct mode. Oh, if Daniel Kvyat has a ride next year, I will be utterly surprised. But but the worst that that Kvyat does. Alongside Carlos, the better Carlos looks. Oh, yeah, definitely. So, But that doesn't change the fact that Red Bull's eggs right now are in Daniel Ricciardo and Max Verstappen's baskets. And remember the magic formula to, to moving up in Formula One and to becoming a world championship, world champion. The magic formula, yes, you have to be a phenomenal driver, but timing is everything. Well, what I say is, is there's three things that you need to be a championship driver. You can be a winning driver with one. You can even be a winning driver with two. But without all three, you won't be a championship winning driver. Number one, you need to have the talent yourself. Mm-hmm. Number two is you need to have the car. You need to have the right car that is performing well and better than anybody else. And then number three, that last piece, and this is what has sunk Lewis in 2012, and we've seen some, uh, sink other drivers further on, you need to have a team that is also performing as well in the pits, mechanically, and all the other stuff to back up the car and the driver so that you can consistently win. You're right. And in order to get those three things, 
one you learn as you come up through the series. That's yeah. that's your talent. That's what what you bring to the the thing. Mm-hmm. The second one is timing. Yeah, absolutely. To get that seat in that, that top tier team at the right time because you're trying to catch. Think about the apexes you're trying to catch. You're trying to catch the team on their apex. Mm-hmm. You're trying to catch that they have an open seat when they're on their apex. Yep. And you're trying to make sure that as they're going up, they're continuing. So you you don't want to catch them the year that becomes their first rebuilding year. Yeah, well, you know, it, you're you're timing. You're you're trying to time getting number two and number three. Right. Yeah, you know, Fernando Alonso's problem. He had number one. He has the talent to win. We know that. Definitely. He could win occasionally. But he never had the, the car or the team that performed consistently enough for him to win a championship. Exactly. And when he did have a car, when he did have the team, because Ferrari is a phenomenal team, mm-hmm. they weren't in the car at that particular moment. They, they didn't have that right yeah. combination of car. And that, those were the years when he was at Ferrari, Red Bull was eating their lunch, and there wasn't a seat at Red Bull at that time. I mean, keep in mind, yeah. when they're, when you're on that moment, the teams aren't going to open up those seats because they don't have to. Exactly. Well, you know, you say that. We don't have two confirmed drivers at Mercedes for 2017. You have one. We have one. We do not have two. And this is a team that is at the peak. They are at the peak, but also keep in mind, there is this giant shuffle that's about to happen. Mm -hmm. Not just all the drivers, you know, musical driver chairs that are about to happen. But keep in mind, there's rule changes that are happening for 2017 that doesn't necessarily mean that Mercedes will get it right again. True. I mean, the truth of the matter is, in the current era of Formula One, the reason Mercedes is on top is because Mercedes was not on top in the previous era. Because they pulled back and they said, "That's this is where we're going to put our dollars. And mm-hmm. they double downed on this era. And they got it right, and they got it right earlier than anybody else did. Yeah. That's why they're on top. Period. And you know, somebody needs to walk up and pat Lewis Hamilton on the back because he saw it. That was brilliance because he saw it. Nobody, when he left well, McLaren to go to Mercedes, thought that Mercedes was anything more than a mid-pack team. It, it, it wasn't just that he saw it, and, and, and because I'm not 100% sure he did. But we know that Nicky Lauda recruited him heavily. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't necessarily so much that Nikki Lauda or that Lewis saw it as Nikki Lauda sold it, and probably <laughs> that was a a possibility also. Um, and I think that Nikki Lauda, with his clout, has a lot of movement to sell it, and I know that that helped push. But you you just have to look at the fact that. Lewis made that move at the right place at the right time. Otherwise, he was going to be a one-time world champion at a bad team. Yeah. 
things were, I mean, he, he bailed out of McLaren at exactly the right time. And I think more than anything else, that's the bigger thing, is that he walked away from McLaren at exactly the right time to do it. And if you think about his history, emotionally, you know that was hard for him because McLaren yes. had, had had him since he was 13. And that was loyalty and, you know, history and all of those things. To bail at that moment was huge. Now, that being said, I don't think Lewis will ever go back to McLaren. No. And it was something that I think everybody speculated upon in the first year. But now, I don't think he will ever go back to McLaren. He does not want to be in that environment. No. No, if he leaves Mercedes, he's leaving for a red car. Anyway, moving on. Speaking of the red cars, uh, the Halo was back. It was only run in a few installation and test laps in Austria. Uh, both uh, Sebastian Vettel and Kimi Raikkonen conducted installation laps. The Halo has been redesigned a little bit. I guess it's mounted a little differently now. Um, it's also it's now made out of titanium which makes it a bit lighter than the previous one, uh, but it's also just as robust. And they've also somehow, and I don't, we don't know exactly how, I haven't seen pictures of it, uh, they've altered the design of the structure somehow. Oh. Uh, but the Halo will be run again uh, around Silverstone, I believe during the, the testing after Silverstone. Because there's, there's another in-season test session after Silverstone. Correct. Interesting. I wish they'd make a decision as to what they're going to do with that. The, the decision is it's coming. It's just they're finalizing the design. Got some interesting news this week from Austria regarding the state and condition of the Red Bull ring. Really? Yeah. Now, in order to, to run the, the current Formula One races, the, the circuit was heavily modified. It was completely renovated, um, turns are redesigned, and we're he we've heard some of that, and we'll talk about the, the, the redesigns that happened this year. But it was also shortened. Yeah. Originally, it was known as the Osterreich ring, or the A1 ring, before Dietrich Manischitz bought it. It was a longer track than it is now. Really? Because it is a very short track. It, it is an extremely long, uh, uh, short track. Um what they want to do is reopen the western section of the old Osterreich ring course. Mm. Um, they want to possibly do it for next year's race. Really? Now, what this is, it's a west loop that is to the outside of the current layouts turn one and turn two. Uh, Helmut Marco says that at present everything is still in the planning stage um, because they would need to get permission from the local government to reuse this part of the track. Oh. It's about 1.6 kilometers that would add to the lap. Um, it's been unused for motorsport for more than 20 years. Whoa. Now, if you go and look at the track uh, in Google Maps mm -hmm. and put it in satellite view, you can clearly see the old area. Um, you can see where it departs from at turn one, and it's basically just it changes turn one from what it is now to um, a sharper right turn to a much, well, that turn one comes a bit later, and it's a, a um, much faster turn. It's not nearly as sharp. Okay. Goes to a long straightaway, 
and then to instead of what is now a very tight turn two, it's a much wider and faster turn two as the, the, the old section turns to rejoin what would currently be part of the track. Oh, okay. The one thing that I'm not sure how they're going to deal with is right now on the outside of that straight just past turn one is a grandstand. <laughs> this would go behind that grandstand. Oh, interesting. Not just behind that grandstand. It wouldn't even be a matter of like, well, you know, if you stood up and turn around, you can see. No, there's a stand of trees behind that grandstand. Then there's the track. Oh, okay. So I don't know how they're going to make that work and, and do that. Um, probably also would need to reprofile the, the pit lane exit as well to accommodate the redesign. But they think they could pull it off in the next year. Well, that would be really cool because I do find one of the things I dislike about this track is that it is so short. I mean, when you're putting in one minute, six second quali laps. Yeah. Um, and d despite the calls that F1 is slow from folks who are no longer in the sport, um, they were breaking records again this weekend. Oh, yeah. So it could be very cool. Plus, anytime you update a track, it, it gets excitement and new things. Yeah. Um, some news from Lewis Hamilton. Well, going into this week, he, there was a fresh power unit placed in his car. Okay. Uh, which means that uh, he has used up his engines. Should there be another out, and it's going to happen, mm -hmm. that's a grid penalty. So there's a guarantee at some point he's going to end up with one. Well, you can just hope that by the time it happens, there's a little bit more firmness to the, the series and that that's not what loses him the championship. Well, you got to hope that they actually have control of when that happens. Um, and it's not a matter of he has a wreck or there's a failure or something like that that requires it, that they can change it on their cycle mm -hmm. because that gives them some say. And, yeah, then they can look at, well, okay, is this a track that, that you know, supports passing? Is this one that, that we know we're going to do well on so that he has a chance to quickly come up through the grid or even better yet, one that he is far enough ahead in the championship that he can handle it if he falls back a couple of places. Right. And right now, he needs every point he can get his hands on. Right, even just to hold on a second. Mm-hmm. The other change this week mm -hmm. is um, the FIA has made further changes to the tire pressure rules. <sighs> Basically, what they have done, because teams at the formula one teams being formula one teams look for any possible way loophole whatever that they can find to get around the rules mercedes in particular was finding ways around the tire pressure rules really and as a result they have changed how pressures are measured and can be done now overall tire pressures are higher and we'll get to why that is probably a big deal this weekend but overall, tire pressures are higher than they have been in the past. Um, some of the processes that the teams, Mercedes in particular, have used to get around and to alter the tire pressures is they put heat into the, in, into the brake so that when the tire is mounted, the heat is transferred to the rim, which increases the tire pressure. Mm 
So even though it's underinflated, the heat transfers into the rim. Everything expands. Tire pressure goes up. They test it. It's at the right pressure, but the brakes cool down, and the pressure goes back down to where they want it to be. It's pretty ingenious. Um, now, in consultation with Pirelli, Charlie Whiting has issued a director aimed at preventing such practices. Uh, Whiting issued a note to all teams outlining the changes to take place with immediate effect. Um, it states that during practice sessions, qualifying, and the race, the minimum starting tire pressures, as set out in the Pirelli preview for each event, will always be checked before their wi the wheels are fitted to the car. <laughs> Whiting also makes it clear, or actually, um, it adds that these checks will only be carried out on new tires or used tires from a previous session and done in the presence of and verified by the team's designated Pirelli engineer. Uh, he also makes it clear that once the tire pressure is set, no air may be released from them, but it can be added. That's the big thing. You can add pressure. You cannot take it away. Okay. So... Do we want to talk about the curbs or do we want to talk about our track facts? Let's talk about the curbs real quick because okay. the curbs and the tire pressure really kind of dovetail together. Yes, they do. So we just talked about that tire pressures increased, particularly they increased for the Austrian Grand Prix. In addition, we talked about that there were enhancements made. Mm -hmm. They got a new tarmac on the... the they got rid of the AstroTurf. There's no oh. AstroTurf. They got some pretty new curbs on the sides of the track. Well, it's a whole new curb design. Right. You've got the, the, the red and white bumper curbs. Mm -hmm. Then just past that, you've got the red, like, teeth kind of curbs. And then if you keep going over, coming out of some of the curbs, you essentially have yellow... Um, sausage curbs. Sausage curbs. I've heard them called baguette curbs, but I think sausage curbs are... The, they're two-inch high steel curbs. That, as it turns out, pound the snot out of your car. And I know this is going to shock every decent F1 fan out there. But the suspension on an F1 car kind is fragile. delicate. Yeah. Um, it's not the, you know, leaf springs of some F-150 Ford pickup truck. It's leaf strings of uh, or, or leaf springs of a 1971 MGB. No, not those either. <laughs> Um, the suspensions are, they are spider webs by comparison. Carbon fiber. Twigs. Well, yeah. And that, that's only part of it. You're, you you got to remember the tires, and, and it's one of the reasons why there's been such fights about changing the size of the tires. The tires are also an integral part of the suspension systems of these cars. And the amount of energy that they absorb as they go over these curbs is a key piece of the suspension. So in the let's dumb down suspension for oh me, you've got the suspension framework mm -hmm. that holds the back end of the car mm -hmm. doing its thing and keeps the tires on. Right. You put tires at a normal pressure that are key parts of the suspension. You add extra cushion because that's what suspensions does is it well, bounces up the, and down. The, the, the Lower the pressure, the more that the tires can absorb. Before it gets the, to the, the fragile. The less energy it passes, the tires pass on to the rest of the car in the suspension. Into that fragile right. framework. When they increase the tire pressure, 
they take away that by nature padding, if yeah. you will. Um, the shock absorption that happens with tires. More, more of and that energy goes into the, into the suspension. suspension system. So here's what's happening. You've got combination of a perfect storm of problems. You have drivers that are pushing the very, very limits, which means they hit the curbs, mm-hmm. very limits of the track. You have higher pressure tires, which are transferring more energy to a delicate suspension system. And as they're riding that curve on the turns, they are shaking to a breaking point the suspensions. Yes. We saw Nico Rosberg break a suspension. We saw Daniel Kvyat break suspension. Really dramatically. Very dramatically. Who else? Sergio Perez, Perez. and um, Max Verstappen. Yeah, I thought there was four. Yep. Um, and then, if they didn't break the suspension portion, one of the other things that they were doing was tearing up the tires. Mm-hmm. So we saw Vettel in the race go out. Well, I think Vettel's issue was different. I don't think that, and, and I haven't heard anything yet on it. I don't think Vettel's issue was necessarily from going over the curbs, unless Pirelli has said something different. Now, granted, Vettel has been known to deny crossing over track limits, even in the face of video showing him doing otherwise. Well, I haven't heard anything from Pirelli, but I did hear that um, Vettel went has registered a complaint with Pirelli. Of course he did. Yeah, um, you, because, you had to see that coming a mile away. Because he's blaming them for his tire woes. Mm-hmm. But anyway, we had tires exploding. We had, you know, falling apart. We were pushing tires to the limits. Those things were all happening. So I go back to, you did have a perfect storm. You had new curbs, larger curbs. You had sausage curbs. You had higher tire pressures. Um I think that the way Mercedes handled Nico's car, which they basically bandaged his suspension, was kind of interesting. Well, uh, I'll get to that in a second. You know, there's been overall two schools of thoughts that have come out of this. Those of you who listened to the NBC sports coverage and heard Steve Matchett talking about it on Saturday at qualifying, his position is, you know, it's one thing to do stuff that deters drivers from – running over track limits, it's another when that thing is destroying cars. Mm-hmm. And that that is a valid school of thought, especially when you look at what happened when Daniel Kvyat, his suspension went away, and Nico's wreck when his suspension went away. Those are both very valid comments. Those of you who wa- watched Channel 4's coverage in the UK and caught David Cothard's position of just stay on the damn track and you won't have this problem, that's the other school. Which is and what both very Charlie val- Whittington. Th- there, there's both very valid positions there. You know, especially when you get deeper into Cothard's position of, you know, if, if this was a Monaco or Singapore or even Baku last week and a driver decided to go on the edge and push it on the edge, they didn't have the runoff. They were putting it into a wall and that was the end of their race. And – no different here. Stay off the curbs. Stay on the track. You won't have this problem. And yeah, that was the FIA's position. And yeah, to some extent, I kind of agree with Matchett. But on the other extent, yeah, it goes back to if you stay on the damn track, you won't have this problem. Well, 
keeping in mind, I mean, let's not lose sight of the fact that the curbs are not on the track. That's And that's the thing. They are outside the track limits. And the drivers are putting two tires on the curbs because that pushes them around the corners. And it's, you know, four tires off the track limits is one thing, but two tires is okay. So they're they're riding the very edge of the rules. And for the on if you take a strict rule-based view, Whiting and Cothard are a hundred percent correct. Stay within track limits, you'll never hit the curb, you won't have a problem. Now I also agree that you shouldn't create things that kill cars. Yes, I know walls kill cars too. There's a wall yeah. of champions in Montreal also. I get all of that. But you have the runoff area for very specific reasons. Why have a runoff and kill the, a car? The, where I think th- there, there's, a, there's a couple of things here. When it comes to the runoff and that stuff, and, and I don't remember whether it was Max who had made the comment or, or, or Carlos Saints or somebody had made the comment in the pre-race of, you know, the the issue with these curves are, you know, it, it's all well and good that, that you've got them there and you want us to stay on the track, but when you're trying to pass somebody and, and you're going two by two or three by three into a corner and somebody's pushing and you end up getting forced into it and that what you know you're not fully in control of where the car goes and well okay one you <laughs> need to be fully in control of where the car goes but you know that that's the whole point of these runoffs is, is so that you don't get in trouble and and you allow these situations and these passing and these things to happen and that's where i have the issue is you know it, it it's one thing to have the runoff and to allow those kind of situations for drivers to push and drivers to get aggressive and to try and pull these moves off and to need to take a little extra room to do that and do that safely. That's one thing. It's a completely other thing to turn around and, well, you know, if I don't take this corner and go all four off or go running off onto the curbs, that costs me a hundredth of a second because everybody else is doing it and everybody else can pull it off and their suspension isn't breaking and I'm losing a hundredth of a second onto a lap because I'm not going onto those curbs. I have a problem with that because that's not the same. That's the, if I take that line, my lap is faster. Not if I need to take that line because we're trying to pass. We're trying to do whatever move. And there's a big difference between running it up to the edge and getting it wrong as opposed to running it to the edge because, well, I don't think I have a choice. You know, in Montreal, going back to the Wall of Champions, yes, if they run it close to that wall, they will shave off a tenth or a hundredth off their their lap, mm-hmm. and that's huge. But if you get it wrong, you pay the price, and it's a big price. And that's it's the same here. Now, okay, possibly doing enough damage to the car where you end up with a situation like Daniel Kvyat, where he's really lucky that a he hit that barrier where he hit it, b there was no other car there, and c. We didn't see a repeat of what happened to Alonzo in, in 
Sydney and that car wasn't pitched end or over end. Mm-hmm. Super lucky there. But I am all for the, if you go off the track, there is some penalty. And they found solutions to that for some turns in Montreal. We have the, you go off the track going into that, that last turn, you can't rejoin the track unless you go around the post. Singapore has something like that. There's a couple of other tracks that have a similar thing, that if you go off the track, the penalty is you can only come back in this spot and nowhere else. Right, you have to go around the bollard. I'm, I'm okay with solutions like that, but there has to be some penalty for when you get it wrong, you're screwed. I am completely down with the idea of you get it wrong, you're screwed. I think that there needs to be a... Needs to be a there, there needs to be a common sense solution that doesn't pitch... Because the, the danger with, with these curbs... As much as, yes, stay off the curbs, you won't have this problem. But the danger with these curbs, and it's why they've taken out the older, larger sausage curbs and some of the other stuff, is at the speeds that these cars runs, if the cars get upset, they quickly go out of control, and it all goes sideways and gets very bad very quickly, mm-hmm. as what happened with Kavia. And that is a problem. Here's my issue, in, in a nutshell. I have no problem with paying a penalty for getting it wrong. Mm-hmm. I don't. I do have a penalty. I have a problem when the penalty increases risk. And here's my here's the thing: in Monaco, in Montreal, in Baku, there are walls that predate the track. Mm-hmm. The walls are there. Yeah, you get it wrong, you're destroying everything. You're going into a wall, and I get it, but. <clears throat> Nobody put the wall there to prevent you well, from getting it wrong. In Montreal, Montreal might, that, might be that, a different. that wall was put in there deliberately. I mean, <laughs> there but, wasn't because there was a building there. That was done for the track. But I guess here, I go back to my, my point, really, is there are places and tracks in this world where getting it wrong does put you in a wall. And I get that. But that shouldn't be every time you get it wrong. That's why we have dedicated tracks that have run off, that you yeah. have the ability to run off and it may destroy your race. Run into the gravel pit, you're not going any further. It could still destroy your and, race, and see, that's but it's why not okay going to destroy your car. Pits. That's why I'm okay with gravel pits. And I don't completely understand why they're going away in exchange for paved runoffs. And I think that's the problem is that we're replacing stuff like gravel pits and other things that deliberately slowed cars down for whatever reason. And it is possible to recover from a gravel pit. It, not always, but, mm-hmm. but it has happened. But when you go and replace them with AstroTurf or you replace them with these paved runoff areas, at that point, there's no real penalty. Right. And that's this is this is where I'm going back to mm-hmm. is I get this idea of you've got this purpose built track. You're putting you've got runoff areas for safety. Mm-hmm. There's got to be a better way to incite the penalty for going off. As opposed to risking life and limb. Well, you know, there there's another option here. And it, it's something that. I know they've explored and they have talked about, but even still, you've got 8,000 different camera angles here. So you know 
when a driver is exceeding track limits. They always know this. Mm-hmm. You turn around and you say, period, the end. You exceed track limits. It's a five-second penalty. And if you do it three times in a race, you're black flagged. Won't have any problem anymore. That's all there is to it. They're a high-tech sport. Work with me on this concept. You run a wire in the ground. Jolien Palmer's dad's track already has it. Run a wire at the track limit on the outside of the track. Every car gets fitted with the sensor. Mm-hmm. When the car, that sensor, because every every one of them has it at the grid. Yep. When the sensor crosses that line, they can loop the video because they have to have an allowance for you got pushed off because you were passing or there has to be some yep. thing. But at that point, you're not having to even look at every incident. You just go back and you go, know. nope, all, all on your own. There you go. That oh, that's well, not a hard well, concept. If no, I can to, come up with how to solve that problem, no, you need to investigate it because again, I, I go back to if it's a situation where you're running two by two or three, something like that, yeah. you but can tell. But they can pull up in race control that one piece of footage. Okay, you yep. know, so and so's car just went off track. There's the loop of the footage that tells you why he went off track. Okay, that's that's because he was edge in the curve he took too much liberty or oh look there's three cars in a row they're all taking the corner at the same time that's a passing that's a racing incident that's ignored now and, and i don't remember the name of the track but jonathan palmer jolien's dad owns a track mm-hmm. that has a system like this in place very cool the fia is aware of it they know about it they have mentioned that they that some point they might even take a look at it maybe yeah Anyway, moving on. Okay. So, you know, this week was the Austrian Grand Prix. Unlike what the guy said in the uh, end of the Tour de France uh, coverage <laughs> on NBC, in, in, you know, throwing it to NBC Sports coverage of the race, um, it is not the Australian Grand Prix. It is the Austrian Grand Prix. It there is. There is a difference. Whole different Several country. thousand miles. But, you know, what that means is this. Yes, that was a great piece of film. (laughs) (laughs) The hills were alive with the sounds of F1 cars. So we have our track stats and facts from the folks over at Renault. Okay, right after that, can we comment on the Red Bull uniforms? (laughs) Certainly. Okay. Certainly. So this would be race number nine. Number nine. So some... Actually, let's start with uh, the lowest starting position for a winner. Because even though F1 has only been back in Austria for the last three years, it's not their first time there. Like we mentioned, they raced on when it was called the A1 ring and the Osterreich ring, and it was a different layout. But the lowest starting position for a winner was 14th. Wow. With the average starting position for the winner is 3.46. Oh, not voting well for the pole setter. There had been seven winners from pole. And there is a 67% chance of a safety car. 
some facts about actually before we even get to the facts uh, highest g-force it turn is at turn eight for one second at 3.2 g 23 percent of the lap is spent under braking and the top speed is 333 kilometers an hour yes so facts about austria finally get to i know you're waiting on this the austrian flag is one of the oldest national flags in the world it dates from 1191 when duke leopold v fought in the battle of acre during the third crusade okay 62 percent of austria's total land area is covered by the alps it has 13 peaks above 3,000 meters and 34 above 2,000 meters Vienna's Central Cemetery has over 2.5 million tombs, including those of Beethoven, Brahms, Schubert, and Strauss, more than the city's present population. Oh, wow. Yodeling has been measured at 92 decibels. A Formula One car peaks at 140 decibels. So an F1 car can out yodel a yodeler. Apparently. Um, in 2015, there were, seven, there were just 17 overtakes. Um, this weekend's tire selection was the ultra soft, the super soft, and the soft lap record set by Michael Schumacher in 2003, which I believe was on the old layout was one minute, 8.337 seconds, which was crushed this year in qualifying. Mm -hmm. I want to say that that was crushed in Q2, <laughs> not even in Q3, which was a good thing since it rained. I was going to say it rained in Q2. Yeah. In Q3. So the current circuit length is 4.326 kilometers with a race distance of 307.20 kilometers. And Renault in Austria as both a constructor and an engine supplier. 54 starts, three wins, six podiums, four poles, four fastest laps, and 62 total points. And none of that happened today. Well, but there was a change today. Thanks to Max Verstappen. <laughs> what was the change? Max had a podium. Yes. So he bumped up the podium numbers. He bumped up the points numbers. And even Daniel Ricciardo scored points today. True. True. I was thinking of Renault as a team. Renault as a team, team yeah. As team banana was um, slipping and sliding at the back of the pack. Yeah, still not that thrilled. Kevin Magnuson, by the way, came out this past week and said that Renault needs to start focusing on 2017 and kind of just bag this year. You know, I can only hope that they are. And I should have mentioned, for some reason, we ended up skipping the story. Haas has turned their attention to 2017. They're turning their attention to 2017 because, um, as Gunther Steiner put it, well, they don't see why they should keep working on this car. They've already exceeded their goals for the year. <laughs> so mission accomplished. Even if they ended up blowing the remainder of the season, they're still doing better than they thought they were going to do coming into this year. So might as well look to 2017. And they say that you know, they're, they're looking at it, and I, I don't think they're quite there, but they say that you know they're looking at it with, from the Mercedes model of get as much time as possible to, to that 2017 car and to those new rules because that's the way to do it. And they're and right. Yeah, he is, but um, I think Mercedes had like four or five years on him. But well, yeah, <laughs> but... You know, and actually, in, in in the current Formula One, an extra month means a lot. Um, okay, so let's discuss Red Bull and their team uniforms this, this weekend. The one thing I don't, we never saw Daniel Ricciardo's overalls. His race suit. His race suit. No, 
We did not. Now, I do know for a fact, actually a couple of things from sightings at the track. Um, Before we even get to Red Bull, somebody who happened to have been at the track spotted by Alexander, or, or spotted by ESPN was Alexander Rossi was over in the manor. Oh, this was he? Yes. Still don't know what the, the status is with his future and whether or not he will be coming over after Hungary, but he was in Austria this weekend. Very interesting. Also spotted this weekend, arriving at the track before even what you saw. Arriving at the track, both Max and Daniel Ricardo were in Lederhosen. Well, yes, I saw the picture of that, yeah. which became the team uniform of Christian Horner wore it also. Yeah, and, and I think a couple of folks on the pit wall wore it. I know the team in the, the pit lane in the garage were not. They were in the normal stuff. Right. But Max also had special coveralls. Yes. Well, okay, back to the later hosen that Daniel, Max, and Christian Horner were all wearing. Um, they had the leather later hosen with a white uh, Red Bull team shirt. It's a nice shirt, actually. It's a very sharp looking shirt. Um, but that was their nod to the local dress. They had the knee socks too. Oh, it it was a very traditional look, and it, it makes sense given that Red Bull is Austrian and Dietrich Mannerschitz owns the track and the team. Correct. And which shockingly, he owns the track and the team, and yet Red Bull has not traditionally had much success at their own track um of course max was on podiums this this time around so well this is the best that the team has ever done since the return but you got to remember though that now that there is no in-season and unlimited testing it's not like they can just run the car out there and tune the car to that track and that would be a poor choice anyway because it's not like a lot of the other tracks true Um, you know there is a little bit of a mix-up because it's it's got some differences Anyway, Max's race suit also had later hosen on it. It did. So it was the full-on navy Red Bull race suit with later hosen embroidered on top of it, which was very amusing. It kind of reminded me of the Indy car driver that drives for the Target car. Oh, uh, Scott. Uh, oh, I'm, I, I'm missing it. It, it. It's Scott Dixon. Scott Dixon. Scott Dixon, who drives for Target, who who um, has the Target name tag embroidered in there with his name on it, but also and, there's and, a Steak and Shake car yeah, it's too. The guy that who drives has, for Steak and that Shake has an, an apron. Yes. on his race with suit. the bow tie. <laughs> yes. with the bow tie. Um, so I like when they do a tongue in cheek kind of thing like that. So I thought that was very cute, but we did not. You are right. See if Daniel also had later hosen. Yeah, I did not see Daniel at all outside of the car. So we don't know how he looked. Um, we might have to see if we can catch either the sky or the channel four coverage um, to figure out what was going on there. Cause I think they were only wearing those for race day. Right. Um, so anyway, that that was a a little fun that they had. You know, overall, I gotta say, with the exception of the last oh, ten, eleven laps or so, it wasn't a great race. It was kind of dull. It had moments. It it had a few moments. Most of them were the end, and honestly, for a race to end. The way it, even without the incident that happened, which we'll get to in a second, 
for a race to end the way it did with a battle over those last three or four laps for position and two drivers pushing hard, that was fantastic. Mm-hmm. And honestly, we got to see more of that. That that was great that that it shook out that way and it worked out that way, that there was that battle going on. The way it happened. The incident. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So do we just jump right into the incident or do you want to talk about Vettel's exploding tire? We can talk about Vettel's exploding tire. It exploded. Let's, well, <laughs> now let's start there because this is this is critical. Okay. The car directly behind Vettel when Vettel's tire exploded was Nico Rosberg. Yes. Nico took the brunt of the debris. And and he clearly did pick up a lot of debris. As there were a lot of uh, close-ups of the car. You could see um, cables from the tire and, and threads and stuff hanging from the undercarriage of Nico's car. It damaged one of the, at least one of the barge boards. I think both of them actually on both sides of the car were broken. Uh, even though they, they kept zooming in on only the one. Um, so we know that he took some level of damage. And he was kept pushing along. But Vettel's car had a tire explode. He ended up with his nose in the wall. Um, it was dramatic. There was a safety car. There's your 67% chance of safety car. <laughs> um, so that was kind of fun. Um, Vettel is angry enough that he walked away from an interview in yeah, the middle of the interview. He, he stormed away from uh, Will Buxton's interview. Um, I don't think he did a whole lot of it, interviews in general. Uh, but he once again lays this squarely at uh, Pirelli's feet. He thinks that the tires are unsafe. This is the, the same song that we heard from him at the end of Spa when, when he had the blowout there. He doesn't believe that the, the team's uh, strategy was in question. Uh, never mind the fact that zooming in on the tire, it was very clearly on the edge. Um, it was very clearly starting to fall apart and flake apart. Um, but he doesn't think it, it, was an, it was an issue. Well, there's a couple of thoughts I have here. First and foremost, I've got to give it to Steve Matchett. He called that tire as being wonky right before it exploded. Um, and the the FIA, because you know we, we we all watch the FIA World Feed, the FIA World Feed zoomed in on his tires multiple times right. in the preceding laps. And you could see those tires getting progressively worse. You could see the graining happen. You could see the wear happen on those rear tires for at least three or four laps. Well, we have not gone back, and we traditionally do go back and watch one of the you know UK coverages mm -hmm. um, when we do watch um, NBC Sports. So I'll be interested to see if they call it two and as well, but I have to give him props because he called it. However, here's the thing, and you said it while we were watching it. Ferrari has had some fairly risky tire maneuvers lately. They're pushing to the edges here. You know, it, it's not just maneuvers. It's or, or, or tire-related stuff. It, it, it's strategies in general. We are seeing Ferrari take a lot more risk than we have seen in the past. And I think that was one of the, Fernando Alonso's last year. One of the big faults that Ferrari had was that they became so risk-averse that they wouldn't make a freaking decision. Right. And that hurt Fernando, and it hurt the team's chances a lot. And we're definitely seeing a team 
going out on the edge a lot more than we have seen in the past from them. Exactly. And one of the things that I keep running through the back of my mind is it's phenomenal that they're taking a risk. It'd be excellent if it ever worked. Yeah, you know, I, I give them full credit for throwing the dice, but they keep getting it wrong. Yeah, perhaps we should kind of not throw the dice quite so hard. Um, okay, so fast forwarding, because I know we're probably running a bit long, so I, I want to talk a little bit about the last incident. We have this incident. Nico picks up some debris. We also have a blown pit stop on the Mercedes side. Um, well, that was on for Lewis. For Lewis. So that lost Lewis's track position on him. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was running behind Nico. And he's on a different tire. And there was questions. And Steve Matchett, I have to say, was a little fixated on the difference on the tire strategies. And I have to trust that the guys on the pit wall knew what they were doing. You know, I kind of agree because I was thinking the same thing. I I kind of agree with, and yes, Matchett knows a lot more than I do. I freely admit that. But that was my thought also of here we were something like 15 laps out. Why go to the soft tires if you've got a super soft available, especially because the soft tires he was going to wasn't a new set. It was a used set. So So why not go with the softer tires, the faster tires, that should be able to make it to the end of the race. Well, what I didn't understand, and this is what match it was, is that both Nico and Lewis had a set of unused ultrasofts. Yeah. And Nico went on to an unused soft because he had one extra set of softs. Mm-hmm. And Lewis, w- not softs, he went on to a set of super softs. And Lewis went on to a soft. They right. both went to new tires. No, Lewis's tires was his second set of tires was a scrub set. It was a scrub set. It was I thought a he, used set of tires. I thought he went to a new set that was the that that was the call was to use the new sets of softs versus no that was the a ultra, scrub set. Soft. He had a new set of the ultra softs, and but he a had scrub set of the softs. And but I knew he did. He was out of super softs. That may have been what it was. That so that I knew he had a used set of super softs, but I thought those softs were new, and I could be wrong, so don't quote me. But the question was, why not go to those ultra softs, especially on Lewis's strategy where mm-hmm. he's trying to to make up room? And I think that that will be something that Mercedes will have to answer for. But again, I'm going to trust that they knew what they were doing, um, and making good calls there. And I just don't know what the call was about. But anyway, Lewis is making up time and he's pushing through the pack and he's getting around people and making some pretty good looking passes. And we get down to the last four laps of that race and he's within a second. And they this start. This is what we want to see. This it was. They are making it through. They're lapping the back marker guys. So for the first of those last four, the first three of the last four laps. Both Nico and Lewis could use DRS mm-hmm. because Nico was within a second of a back marker team. So even though he wasn't racing them, which I do find to be a little obnoxious, um, but even though he wasn't racing them, he could use DRS is the way the rule is written. So there was effectively no gain, but Lewis is trying, you know, he would close the gap to 0.3, open it back up to 0.5, go down to 0.3, open it up to 0.5. It was back and forth for those laps. And then Nico hit clean air. But before you get to that, the reason why they allow 
a, a driver to get DRS off of a lapped car is because specifically in that situation, you have a situation where you've got a lapped car holding up a car yeah. racing who's being chased by another car who has DRS. The risk is using that DRS assist, the car, the, the chasing car, gains in not just the DRS advantage, but they gain an advantage of a combination of DRS and a lapped car holding up a competitor. So in order to prevent the chasing car from gaining advantage on the traffic, due to the traffic, they allowed the DRS for the the non-lapped car. I understand. And, and it, it, it does at first seem really, really bad until you realize how that scenario would have played out without the DRS, and then you're like, oh, well, okay, yeah, I guess that does kind of make sense. Because it otherwise, doesn't... why the heck should, should a, a, a car get DRS off of somebody who's been lapped? That, it, it seems completely counterintuitive until you put the full scenario together, and it's like, oh, wait a minute. Well, and I know that it also will aid in passing the lapped car and mm-hmm. make that a little bit faster, and I understand that too. Anyway... So Nico hits clean air because they don't have anybody else to pass. Yep. And Lewis is right there on his heels and Lewis tightens that that space up like nobody's I was that was a hell of a drive at that point. It really was. And the question became as both you and I leaned forward in our seats. I mean, it was that kind of a moment. The question became was there enough lap left to make the pass? Because Lewis had the tires. Lewis had slightly newer but harder tires. Mm-hmm. So he had the tires on him and he wasn't crippled by a um all the debris from the yeah. battle piece. And you and I and everybody in our listening audience knows that when the opportunity happens and Lewis and Nico go head to head, who always wins? Well, it's happening that way because Actually, I think it's more along the lines of when Lewis or, or when Nico tries to get aggressive with Lewis, it, it goes badly. It always backfires. Lewis is able to successfully pull these moves off and get aggressive on Nico without screwing both of them. Mm-hmm. Nico, he doesn't quite manage to pull it off. And once again, that's what we saw here. Okay, so the official story and. I'm going to preface this. I have by, the steward statement. I, I have, I have okay. give that too. But I'm going to preface this by telling you that Toto Wolf has come out and said that he will be thinking about it over the next couple of days. So there is some piece of this. But the stewards came out and said that Nico had a break by wire issue. He was having a braking problem. Mm-hmm. Lewis was significantly enough alongside and ahead to have been able to take the racing line. And Nico did not allow him to have racing room. Well, we'll, we'll get to all that because I've got statements from, from everybody here. Okay, go right so, ahead. So let's first start with the steward statement. Okay. They, they found Nico to blame. Oh, yeah. Which Nico, his feeling is that being blamed sucks. <laughs> um, but what the steward statements, the steward's statement said was having taken note of the extensive evidence given by both drivers and the video and telemetry data, it was apparent that car number 44, which was Lewis, was in front of car number 6, Rosberg, i.e. more than fully alongside. 
the driver of car 44 could have clearly made the turn on the track if not for the resultant collision. Car number six did not allow car number four racing room, and hence the driver of car number six was responsible for the collision. Okay. Now, there was a second infringement that was assessed as well as part mm -hmm. of this, um, and that was regarding to a um, Nico not pulling off after damaging his car. Um, the steward statement read, Article 22.11 of the Formula One Sporting Regulations requires a driver with serious mechanical difficulties to leave the track as soon as it is safe to do so. We do note the extenuating circumstances and the fact that the driver of car number six did slow down significantly and attempted to mitigate the risk to other drivers in cars. Mm -hmm. Now, regardless, Nico still got a time penalty, not enough to affect his final finishing position and for the first time in 12 months two points on his license yep um so that's that i've got statements if you want to hear nico's statements okay nico and uh, nico toto and lewis okay so nico first he says i'm on the inside i have the right to defend i don't need to take the ideal line I had Lewis on the outside, and I wanted to keep him there, of course, leaving him track space. It's a fact he had space. You can look at the onboard and all the other cameras. Of course, after the collision, it may look like he did not because I am airborne and I lose grip and it takes me further out of the track. And after that, it may look like there was less space, but that's irrelevant because that's after a collision. I just want to repeat, at all times, there was space prior to the collision. I'm just extremely frustrated because I felt I had the win in the bag, and even in the moment, I was sure I was in a good position to defend and win it just before the collision. The collision completely took me by surprise. I didn't expect Lewis to turn in. I can't say I didn't drive into anybody because I had the car fully under— Oh, excuse me. I, I can say I didn't drive into anybody because I had the car fully under control at all times. I didn't lock up any tires or anything. Completely under control. Him turning in just completely caught me by surprise. He apparently said in a TV interview I was in his blind spot, so maybe that is the reason why he turned in. That's a possible explanation. I would love to have won here, and to lose it in such a way on the last lap is unbelievably hard. I lost the race. He won it, and I'm the guy who suffered in the collision. I was unlucky. He was lucky. Lewis is almost always lucky when you guys go head-to-head, guy. Well, yeah, Dude. <laughs> I mean, seriously. And... I think it's I think it's something to very much note. Somebody said, Lewis, but something I read, Lewis is a very intuitive racing driver. You and, said it was on BBC. Yeah, and because, and and by contrast, Nico is a very technical yes. racing driver, and where they can complement each other, they also hinder each other. But because Lewis is such an intuitive racing driver, he has the ability to push Nico in such a way that if the roles were reversed, Lewis, the, the way the BC outlined this was that they believed that Nico was trying to push Lewis to the point of having to make a decision to go off the track or collide. And that, that was the, those were the only two options. Mm-hmm. Which was all fine and dandy, except that if Lewis was trying to make Nico make that decision, he would have ensured that if the collision happened, it would have been Nico's car that got damaged, not his. Which and is kind of what happened. 
And that's exactly what happened with Nico's car. But Lewis wasn't trying to push Nico off the track. If Lewis was pushing on Nico to make the choice between you go off the track or you're going to collide with me, the BBC said that the history of Lewis, his intuitive nature, is that he would he does it in such a way that if Nico chooses the collision, Nico still suffers. Well, that's and then I, I think that's a critical piece that people need to understand. I, I, I think that, but but I don't even think that's it. I, I think it's more that Lewis knows Nico well enough because this is how it's happened in Montreal. This is how it's happened in Austin. It's how it's happened every other time that Lewis has had to do this to Nico or has done this to Nico. Lewis knows that if he pushes Nico, Nico gives way. Mm-hmm. And well, on the Nico, other hand, when Nico pushes Lewis, Lewis will not give way. He never does. Well, there's that, but if Nico decides not to push, not to give way, i.e. Spain, mm-hmm. i.e. Austria, when he doesn't give way, it goes badly for Nico. Yep. And what the BBC is calling out is that that's also part of the intuitive driving style of Lewis, that Lewis lines those things up in such a way and intuitively that it does go bad for Nico. Nico's not thinking in those terms. And I think that that's something that people need to really understand. The difference between the technical driver skill that Nico Rosberg has, and I am not discounting that that man is a very technically great great driver. driver. And the intuitive nature, because technique will get you so far, but the intuition is what makes the champion because he's pushing the other drivers. He's pushing them to their limits and watching them fall away. So where I question this is, yes, I think Nico has a right to defend. Mm-hmm. But what – I think given the situation, and, and, and Lewis is right here, and this is why I think he was pointing out that he was on the outside. Lewis has a responsibility to give Nico room, and he did. Nico had room to follow the racing line. He had room to take the apex of that turn. He had the room to do that. And Nico, by his own admission, says, I took it wide. I took it wide. And he he told uh, um, Will Buxton this. There were two reasons I took it wide. One was because of the the braking issues, and the other was because I was trying to push Lewis wider. Mm -hmm. He did that into a turn. You do that, you take the risk. When Lewis does it to Nico, and Lewis has done it to Nico several times, Nico backs off, and Lewis knows it. Mm-hmm. Nico has to realize that Lewis won't back off right. and come up with a different approach. Right. And along the same lines, possibly not back off when Lewis pushes him. But so, What did Lewis have to say about the incident? Lewis says that he would have loved to have gone to the inside, but he covered the inside, so he had to go to the outside. But even got past him, which was mega. It's very hard to do that here. If he had done turn one normally, as he'd done the lap before, I wouldn't have had the chance. But fortunately, the opportunity came. I don't go go out to get involved in a collision. Today, as you saw, I drove as wide as possible within the white lines, so I left a larger space. Three cars could have come on the inside there. Honestly, I don't want to get into any negatives. I just want to focus on the fact that I won today. You guys can see the move and take your opinion from that. I have my own opinion, but I'm going to keep that to myself and try to focus on the race. The team want to finish first and second. That's my goal and the team's goal, and I want to be at the front of that. But certain circumstances have led us to where we are today. 
And Toto is just mad. Toto is mad. Now, Nikki Lauda, because I know you said you didn't have his statement, mm-hmm. Nikki Lauda has come out and pointedly said that he finds Nico to be at fault. And, you know, Toto was very careful, and, and I think it's because Toto has learned since Spawn not to do this, but Toto was very careful not to point out blame. Um, but what he has said is that, you know, they're thinking about um, team orders now, mm-hmm. which I don't think are going to make the situation possible. But he, what he says is, from my naive thinking, I said to myself, okay, that's it. They've learned their lesson. They've seen the... Con- oh, he, he's talking about from Spain. From my naive thinking, I said to myself, okay, that's it. They've learned their lesson. They've seen the consequences. It's not going to happen anymore. But here we go. Happens again. So the only consequence is to look at all the options available on the table, and one option is to freeze the order of a certain stage in the race. It's unpopular. It makes me puke myself because I'd like to see them race. But if the racing is not possible without contact, then that's the consequence. We'll have a cool down a little bit, and in the next couple of days, figure it out. There's the heat of the moment. It's either the first lap or the last lap. And you know what? I am fed up with trying to analyze it. I just don't want any contact anymore. The fact is, if they race the way we saw in Bahrain 2014, that's the best example. We love it. A collision of teammates is a no-go for every team and needs to be avoided. Well, he's very right. It is the cardinal sin of F1 to take your teammate out of the race. Mm-hmm. It is the cardinal sin of F1 to hit your teammate. And these guys are really pushing. There's not enough distance between them in the championship that they're not going to start pushing at each other. Yeah. I mean, that's that's the reality. You've got two guys who want to be number one, two guys who are fighting for a championship, and these kind of things are going to happen. You're going to have these kind of pushes. Now— but I don't honestly think team orders are going to matter. I think we're going to wind up no, with radio calls that say, you know, we have team orders and, well, screw you. Yeah, and, and I think somebody's going to end up paying a price for that in some way or another. But, I, but yeah, I think if they turn around and say, okay, um, bring the cars home, leave them in this position, and there's a chance like we saw in Austria, that somebody's going to ignore those orders. Mm-hmm. And actually, let me rephrase that. Lewis is going to ignore yeah. this. <laughs> I think Nico would probably follow him. I think Lewis would blow it off. Mm-hmm. Um, so Christian Horner had a quick comment. Wait a minute. Does he get the right to comment? Well, uh, somebody went to him. I, I think it was Autosport went to him because, well, he's had his own history with teammate issues. You know, it wasn't exactly a particularly warm relationship between Mark Weber and uh and Sebastian Vettel. Mm-hmm. Um, and it wasn't, we're not just talking about multi-21. There were other incidents, including where they took themselves out. Um, he, Christian says that, um, you know, Toto really needs to take a look at this because it's possible at this point with these two drivers at the top of their game that pairing them together may not be a tenable thing anymore. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then the microphones went away. And Christian said, see, you said the same thing two years ago. Screw you. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, the other thought is that Christian Horner's like, you know, we'll gladly take Nico off your hand. <laughs> no, I don't think so. No? no. Knowing what Red Bull 
is and what they have done with their program. I don't think that anybody who is coming from anywhere other, other than, than Toro Rosso is, is an interest to them and ever will be an interest for any time in the foreseeable future. Well, I Ferrari mean, might be thinking otherwise. Yeah. It's, it's untenable. We'll take that off your hands for you. So moving to some other stuff. Okay. Some exceeding expectations. Exceeding expectations, number one, Pasco Verline getting a manner into a point. Q2. Well, even before that, he actually got them up into Q2, which I think has been the first time that has ever happened in dry weather conditions. Yep. Maybe the second time, but I'm almost positive it was the first time that's ever happened. Go Pasco. Now, I really didn't think it was possible for him to make it up into Q3, despite what the NBC folks were saying. Or, or actually, no, it wasn't NBC. It was Ben Edwards mm-hmm. thought that they might actually. I, I didn't think that that was a probability. But even still, that was an outstanding showing and for he didn't, the Manor team. he didn't qualify at the back end of Q2. No. He was up in the middle of Q2. Now, post-race... Pascal came out and said that, um, yeah, everything, it was like a completely different car. They've struggled with tire temperatures and pressures, but everything worked and it all clicked and it was just outstanding. Um, to which um, Will Buxton said, well, you know, we go to Silverstone next week and that's typically cold and rainy too, so you guys should be all set. And Pascal's like, yeah, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just enjoy this. But he got him but a point. He got him a point, and it really was an outstanding weekend for, for Manor and good for them. Now, of course, you being the rainy weather, um, I don't know, you just rain on parades all the time. You wanted to remember the fact that the last time that Manor got a point. Well, the last driver to get, get a, a point for Manor. What was it? The very next race? No, no. It was much further than that. It was okay. later in the season. Later in the season, he crashed and then subsequently passed away. Yeah. So, you know, you're just a ray of sunshine. Yeah. So we're, we're, we're hoping that we don't have a situation in Japan. No. Also exceeding expectations. Half of McLaren Honda. Yes. Fernando Alonso really did not have a great weekend. But holy crap, Jensen Button qualifying in fifth, getting that car in the third. And he joked about it yesterday. On, on or He <laughs> joked about it after qualifying on Saturday, talking to uh, the folks over at Channel 4 that, you know, he's seen it on TV all the time. The way it works in Formula One is the car's up front. They just, the, the lights go out and they just disappear into the, pay, the into the distance. And he's seen it. That's how it works. And that's what he thought was going to happen. And holy crap, sure enough, it started out that way for him. <laughs> he made it two <laughs> laps in second place. Yeah. I mean, I... Let's just kind of revel in it. Actually, I think he made it closer to like fifth or lap five or lap six, if not seven, Mm -hmm. um, that Kimi Raikkonen had to work for it to get past him. Yep. That was a great run for him. And then to end the race in fifth, really fantastic. This was the first time that a McLaren Honda has made it into the second row Mm -hmm. ever. It's the first time that um, Jensen has been in Q3 since, I thought they said 2014. Wow. Yeah. 
Wow. This was a huge, huge weekend. And, you know, I know, without a doubt, Ron Dennis was wandering around the trailers going, see, told you, third best on the grid. <laughs> okay, but not third best on the grid. He was fifth best on the grid. He only got third because of penalties. Ron Dennis is mine. <laughs> third best on the grid. Told you. Look at that start, man. We are there. Mercedes, you better look out. I'm coming for you. <laughs> Slowly and from the rear. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but still, that was an extremely impressive run, and we need to see more of that from the McLarens. Yeah. So, yeah, that was really all we had coming out of this race so well, far. I'm sure there'll be more coming in over the coming weeks, and yeah, we'll, we'll hear what what the uh, the latest revisions to the naughty step entail over at Mercedes. <laughs> I'm quite sure that the naughty step will have to uh, be sat on quite a long time this week. Yeah. Um, and this coming weekend, we're heading to Silverstone. Mm-hmm. Um, which will be this, very interesting. This is going to be a hard weekend for us. We've got Silverstone uh, in the Formula One world, and isn't the AMA Vintage Grand Prix, Vintage Motorcycle Races at uh, Mid-Ohio Sports Car Course? It is. Yeah, it's going to be a hard weekend. <laughs> but that's okay, because our new sunbrella to block out and give us some shade at Mid-Ohio is on its way from Amazon. Excellent. Um, which we have yet to have a chance to talk about our trip to Mid-Ohio last weekend. Um, and I'm sure that's going to have to get tabled for some future. We have a mid-season break. Guys, hold on to the mid-season break. There will be lots to come. We'll have all kinds of stuff. We'll have an IndyCar race to talk about. We'll have a vacation to talk about. We'll have all kinds of stuff. You just hold on. Things that we're going to have to write in our kayak journal. Oh, no. And on that note, We'll call it a show. We are so glad you came. Bye-bye. 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 Bye-bye now. Bye. Bye-bye. Remember, please discard all candy wrappers and popcorn containers in the nearest trash receptacle. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye now. Bye-bye. Bye. <laughs> okay. Are they all gone? Uh, is, is, there, is everybody gone? <laughs> huh? Good. Oh my gosh, my cheeks are killing me. I can't keep smiling like this anymore. I am exhausted. I think I need a break. A little break? Okay.